So welcome back to the Coffin Heroes podcast review catch up special sequence. Uh, we're going to be looking at titles released on the 8th of December 2021. So it's your usual two cohorts here. We have myself, Alan, owner and operator of Coffin Heroes in Belfast. And I'm joined, of course, by Keith this evening as well. I'll ask it for the third time. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right. I'm doing okay. I've got a whiskey in my hand now, so I can't complain. This is definitely evolving, this podcast. We both we started this podcast, I think, with coffee and tea in our hands. We're now under the whiskey, so... Yeah, this is this is kind of our Shadows of the Bat. This is our rapid-fire weekly release. I think, uh, yeah, you know, good comparison. To try and, yeah, absolutely. Or our Spider-Man Beyond, if you will. Quite, yes. So, uh, so, yeah, so as I say, we're going to be covering the 8th of December here, and there was a lot of good stuff this week from, from all companies. So, uh, in terms of pull lists, uh, mine was a little smaller this week than the previous week. I had 22 titles in total. India is still leading the way for me this week. I had 12 indie titles in total. Then I had 60C and 4 Marvel. So, how about yourself? What were your numbers, Keith? Uh, well, for the second week running, I am uh, I am exceeding you in titles, uh, but it's a slightly lower week for me as well. I've got 26 titles, 3 DC, 11 Marvel, 12 Indy, and I think that was the luck of the releases. I think this was a, a very low DC week for both of us, relatively speaking, but... If you look at how low your Marvel is compared to what it should be, it's, I don't know. <laughs> I listen to these excuses just because in the previous <laughs> pod you said, I'm not that biased. And here we have eight is your difference between Marvel and DC. Ma- yeah, but you've only got two, you've only got six DC yeah. to my three. So, but you know, I have four just Marvel, there's, there's only two difference DC and Marvel for me. Yeah, I know, but relative to my 11 Marvel, <laughs> it just shows us that, you know. But we both have 12 indie. I wonder, are they the same 12 indie? That would be interesting to know. I sincerely doubt they are because I'm pretty sure my pick of the week you're not reading. So, but That's what, fair. What is interesting is, for despite it being a lower DC week, as you say, we are still going to be talking a couple of DC titles and, in fact, kicking off with them. So why don't you kick off with the first honourable mention then for this week? Yes, so we're still very much in DC annual territory. Uh, we had Nightwing and Joker uh, and a few others, Batman annuals and Detective Comic annuals and stuff. But uh, I'm highlighting the Superman Son of Kal-El 2021 annual by regular series writer Tom King. And at first pass, you'd be forgiven for thinking that not too much happens in this issue. But, you know, where better for the new Superman to be introduced to his father's arch enemy, the nefarious Lex Luthor? The book begins with a tale of old, uh, the Justice League foiling Luther and himself and Superman beginning a game of chess whenever Luther's imprisoned in the aftermath. It's a classic scene. Uh, this picks up following a great encounter between John and Lois and Batman, where with John and, and Luther's first encounter, you know, planting the seeds of respect and rivalry and the demonstration that what has been at the core of the series so far, that John is inspired by his father, but is a very different Superman from Clark being a lesson learned by Lex. Um, uh, yeah, I just thought this was a lovely self-contained story that that adds to the to the mythos of the new Superman that Tom Taylor is more than ably creating. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I just, I love what he's done here. I, just, I love what he's doing, you know, just in a way replacing Clark Kent as Superman with his, with his son, but in a very respectful way very respectful and uh, way that makes you kind of go as a Superman fan go I'm alright with this I'm more than alright with this I love this yeah I mean what was great with this being um, the, the son of Kal-El annual was that it was positioning John as a threat worthy of Luther's attention if that makes sense I mean the mm. the cover has this speech bubble of you know and who are you supposed to be because 
Jonathan is sitting in, you know, Lex Luthor's penthouse, feet up on the table in a Superman outfit. But of course, Lex is sort of like, look, my nemesis is Clark Kent. Who are you supposed to be? But I think that's what this was about. This was about John getting under his skin a little bit, which of course he does by beating him in chess, which is, uh, you know, as we all know, a Lex Luthor doesn't like to lose, shall we say. Uh, certainly not in the game that requires thought and planning and strategy. Uh, so yeah, I thought this was really cool as well. It was... Uh, cool art on it as well by steve poo clayton henry you know it, it whizzed by as you said it, it in a weird way it felt like nothing happened but it was a great mm. character uh, <laughs> development piece there was a lovely there was a lovely moment here that uh called back to a, a long gone character in alfred where batman drops by lois's apartment with a message that uh that he wishes john to deliver to clark and as batman settles in john asks him if he would like tea and batman asks for gray if they have it John tells Batman, of course we have it. You've got a supply every month that Alfred sent just in case Batman <laughs> dropped by. He did it for all his friends. <laughs> uh, Tom Taylor loves Alfred. He really does. He writes him so, so well. I remember oh, that Batman annually wrote with, uh, it was called Father's Day, and it was all about Alfred's uh, impact oh, yeah. on Bruce. I miss yeah. Alfred. I miss Alfred. Yeah, but I mean, he's very much present in wee moments like that. And one of those rare moments where you see that Batman is both taken off guard and is pleased. Yeah. Yeah, so a, yeah, nice, nice wee moment, and of course that leads us nicely on to your first pick of the week. Effortless, effortless, right there. So my first four pick of the week, uh, for sorry for honourable mention, is Batman One One Eight. But it was easy for me to make that slip of the tongue there because this was ridiculously close to pick of the week territory for me. Uh, though my recent return to the world of wrestling means Batman just gets pipped at the post, but more on that later. Uh, but yeah, fantastic issue and a great introduction for me anyway to the direction that the Batman title is going in after the finishing up of uh, James Tinian's run. So we now have Joshua Williamson on as writer and a team of Jorge Molina and Mikel Yannon on art. And I'm so happy to say that we are in more than safe hands with this uh, this creative team. So. In issue 118, Gotham is celebrating the end of Fear State. You know, citywide criminal activities have been thwarted. And the best Batman can do to keep busy is break up petty theft. And even then, his mere presence on a rooftop with, you know, celebratory fireworks going off behind him, though he is still encased in shadow, of course, and what a beautiful image that is, is enough to convince the burglars to turn themselves into the police. You know, this, this was the first hint that I liked the direction Williamson is aiming for. You know, for too long, Batman just felt part of the city and criminals weren't especially afraid of him anymore. But with this one interaction, Williamson has once again established Batman as a terrible thought in the minds of criminals. It's a return to classic Batman storytelling that I'm very much in favor of. So, you know, the, the issue moves on and Batman next has to infiltrate and stake out a billionaire's ball, which has the theme of Gotham's villains. I mean, don't you just love the super rich in Gotham and the extraordinarily bad taste they exhibit at every possible opportunity? But uh, yeah, there's a two-page spread here that is simply majestic, you know, as Batman surveys the scene and sees so many people dressed up as his rogues gallery and from different time frames and continuities, no less. So amongst all of this, Batman must work out who the villains are amongst the elite, though you, you know, case could be made that every single one of them is a villain. Yes. Uh, and take them down. <laughs> Thought you'd like that one. <laughs> and take them down. He's done. And and when he's done, you know, well, and possibly a dig at the real world, I think, who are obsessed with thoroughly bad people such as the Joker and Harley Quinn. A young girl dressed as Punchline asks for Batman's autograph. And it must be weird for Batman who vows to fight crime and put away the bad guys to see the next generation of Gothamites 
idolizing these villains you know suffice to say though he still gives her an autograph uh but yeah the rest of the book sets up where the arc is going you know it introduces a new villain in a surprising way and links everything back to batman incorporated you know clearly williamson understands the history of batman and is going to pull from it wherever he can you know it was great to have a batman issue focus uh squarely on batman himself and not the endless sidekicks or villains you know i have a feeling based on this first issue and having read the the second issue since that this new creative team is going to serve us up something very special so yeah really enjoyed it very happy to see Williamson on the uh, on the title now. So, Batman 118. Yeah, uh, Tynan's run on Batman came too soon, but I'm happy to see him replaced by none other than Joshua Williamson. Yeah, perfect, uh, perfect replacement if you ask me. So, will yeah. his run on Batman be as long as his run on Flash was? People can't see this right now, but both fingers are crossed. <laughs> good for you um, I am moving us away from DC and uh, back towards the, the indies with an image title that seems more indie than even image uh, with what's the furthest place from here number two it's the second double sized issue of Matthew Rosenberg and Tyler Boss's compelling take on post apocalyptic life we're starting to discover the world that has been built here it's a, a world of gangs and alliances of little fiefdoms of teenagers all overseen by the strangers with a capital S. And the more readers learn, the more interesting it all becomes. The twisted, exaggerated, almost religious fervor uh, with which the kids have allied themselves to themes around which their tribes are built is great. And this issue, we explore some other gangs and we begin to be introduced to the all-pervasive strangers. The characters are all interesting and I'm, I'm, I'm... I'm struggling with all the names, but the little identifying icons inside the front covers are really, really helpful to, to identify the characters, at least. And I'm also enjoying the the heavy line work and the newsprint feel of the art. It really syncs well with the the Warriors, meaning the movie-like uh, feel of the blasted wasteland and the left of centre. Can't quite get a handle on it, nature of the story. Very, very cool stuff from Matthew Rosenberg. Yeah, off to a very, very strong start. It's a great creative team, that Rosenberg and Tyler Boss, who did great work with four kids walk into a bank. They have a very defined style. And yeah, yeah, I like that description, actually, of the sort of newsprint feel of the art. I think that that's a really good description for the title. But yeah, it is throwing a oh, lot at you. you. You're very welcome. Uh, it is throwing a lot <laughs> at you. Lots of characters, lots of different uh, gangs. Uh, it's obviously world building at the same time as well. And then there's the heavy influence of music and so forth in it as well. But I have a feeling that's a, a title that's going to you know, demand rereads and uh, you'll learn more from mm-hmm. it with every issue. So, yeah, we move away from that and on to my next honorable mention from Marvel, and that is Captain America Iron Man number one, written by Derek Landy and art by Angel Uzanata. Yes, you heard it correctly. I'm putting a title which has Iron Man in it in the honorable mentions. But this is not anything to do with Iron Man. This is due in no small part to the fact that it's written by Derek Landy. You know, he wrote the excellent Falcon Winter Soldier miniseries. Uh, I know there's a lot of uh, guys who listen to the podcast, a big fan of Skullduggery Pleasant. Uh, and this serves as a direct sequel to events that were set up in Falcon and Winter Soldier. So there's a great continuity going on here. I may have put a title with Iron Man in it, which surprises few, which will surprise a few people, but suffice to say it's no surprise that almost everything in this title is Tony Stark's fault. Years ago, <laughs> Stark had a fling with a scientist called Veronica Eden, personally approved her application to S.H.I.E.L.D. If only she hadn't been an undercover Hydra agent tasked with infiltrating S.H.I.E.L.D. 
She is then transported, uh, being transported to prison, I should say, and has broken out back character called 51. And this draws the attention of Captain America and even Iron Man. He actually decides to try and fix his mistake. Uh, there's plenty of humour to enjoy here and also some lovely art from Uzanada, who I believe is the, the artist on the ongoing Iron Man series at the moment. Uh, so they're right yeah. at home here, you know, whether it's fun character moments or, or splash pages and action sequences. You know, I'm very much enjoying these miniseries from Derek Landy, and he's a name worth keeping an eye on for comic fans. You know, we're maybe getting more familiar with his Marvel work uh, than they are with his skullduggery pleasant novels. So, yeah, really cool number one, I thought. What was your, your take on this? Yeah, I loved it. It's it's obviously the direct sequel to Falcon and the Winter Soldier, uh, which was Derek Landry's previous work. It seems like he's almost doing a sideways uh, reintroduction of the old Marvel team-up concept. Uh, and if he keeps doing it, I'm really interested to see where it where it goes. Uh, yeah, Tony may make mistakes, but he is happy to own them and uh, and try and, and replay them, repair them, you know. And uh, I mean, obviously, key to this is the relationship between Steve and Tony, uh, you know, brothers in arms really um which was what made you know the original civil war so poignant um yeah very much enjoyed it and enjoying the uh, the uh what, do you, what did you call it? avengers academy mm-hmm. stuff the the 50 50 state initiative 51 state 50 50 state initiative mm-hmm. wasn't it uh, back you know post-civil war and the the creation of uh add-on avengers teams uh for each state and 51 who is the, the alien character here was a member of of one of those, uh, one of that 50 state initiative. I think it was the, was the 50 ones. I can't remember how many states <laughs> were initiated, but that was a long time ago anyway. But uh, it's good. These are some characters here, a bit of a blast from the past. But yeah, very much enjoying it. Well, I believe we're going to stick with Marvel then for your uh, your next honourable mention. We are indeed. Uh, Jonathan Hickman's Inferno number no. three wins the prize for the most most leading most misleading cover of the week. Because we don't get the Xavier Magneto showdown with Nimrod that's promised, but that doesn't mean that the penultimate issue of Inferno isn't absolutely brilliant. It's packed with answers to questions posed as far back of, of as far back as House of X and, and Powers of Ten, and it's making me wish there'd been more of this kind of thing in the line over the past couple of years. Because Hickman really is the best at what he does. Uh, some would say Wolverine. In this case, I think Hickman. Um, they do very different things, to be fair. <laughs> uh, even even at this late stage of things, this issue contains a couple of game changers uh, between uh, Doug Ramsey, Warlock and Krakoa, and between Nimrod and the Omega Sentinel. It almost feels like Hickman is trying to cram everything that he had planned in this series you know, into this particular miniseries because this issue, you know, the strongest yet of what's a great mini, has a moment... On every page, the art is by R.B. Silva, Valerio Shidi, and Stefano Caselli. All great with Silva, the absolute standout. This is next level stuff, exactly as was promised by House and Powers, because Hickman gets the depth of mythology in the X-Men stories, and most importantly, understands that the drama comes from the tensions and relationships between characters. I'm loving being back exploring this foundational stuff of the Krakoan era. And you could probably pop straight onto this from Hawks and Pox with a segue into the Ten of Swords and the Hellfire Gala, most especially planet-sized X-Men, you know, if, if you wanted. And I'm just, I'm sorry to see Hickman leave it behind, honestly. Uh, it's great stuff. 
Well, yeah, this is the thing with Inferno. I, I haven't read any of Inferno because I've been reading the X-Men stuff through sort of omnibuses and so forth. So obviously loved House of X, Powers of Ten. Uh, I've got X of Swords. I'm halfway through that. I've picked up Hellfire Gala in omnibus form. And then I've no doubt that Inferno, I'm pretty sure actually it's been solicited already for a, mm. a sort of a mini omnibus hardcover. Because these are all oversized issues, aren't they? They're sort of like 50 pages. Yeah, yeah, they are. They're thereabouts. So, yeah, I mean, it's... Hickman is a guy with big ideas and there, there's there been stuff I've read like I did read Planet of uh, X for example or Plant Sized X-Men I should say uh, and there was some game changing big themes in it so uh, I've no doubt that this will maybe be a run I mean would you maybe say his X-Men run is maybe slightly underappreciated at the moment and maybe it might be a run in 5-10 years people might look back at it and go you know there was some, some great stuff there yeah no I think I think so I think you know, I don't think it's all. I don't think it's all going to be shared by any stretch of the imagination. I think the Krakoan era is here to stay, mm-hmm. and I think the fact that, and I, and I think for many, many years to come, uh, and I think, uh, I, I think you're right. I think this will be appreciated maybe after the fact. Um, people are weird. <laughs> fans are fans are weird. Yeah. You know, they were all they were all in it for House and Powers, and then you know, whenever they realised, oh, we're not. You know, a lot of fans realised, oh, hold on, this is not an X Men I understand, or this is not. This is not going back to the mansion. Yeah, the health, you know, the you know the the uh, the Xavier Mansion. You know, they the, they sort of turned on it a wee bit. You know, but and and also the number of books that were published for me, I like it because it's going back to you know the the format of how X Men used to be. And mm-hmm. what what he what he has done is he has, he has pushed the X Men back to being center stage at Marvel. Which is you know, and for so long that yeah, exactly, exactly that. Yeah, so that's Inferno 3. There's one issue to go of that then. That was a four-issue uh, mini-series, so I've no doubt we'll be chatting about Inferno 4 when that comes along as well. So moving away from the, the House of Ideas and over to Image Comics, just like those seven artists back in the 90s. Uh, so <laughs> I am impre- I'm impressed with that. Yeah, so for me, the next honorable mention is Silver Coin number seven. So uh, this one is written by Ram V with art by series creator Michael Walsh. So it's the turn of another of the podcast favorite writers to make their way into this sort of dark horror anthology world, uh, which, of course, as I say, is created by Michael Walsh. So what's great here is Ram V continues to showcase his versatility. You know, he's clearly as much at home in the world of horror one shots as he is telling long form narratives in the world of the symbiotes. You know, if you equate the silver coin with wealth and dark desires coming true, then it's no surprise that we've ended up in Sin City itself, Las Vegas. So with this one, we're following a character called Lou Prado, and he's your stereotypical Vegas loser. You know, he can't win a bet to save his life. He has a long-suffering partner at home and believes that his luck is going to turn around with every single new bet he places. And then suddenly it does turn around. You know, maybe it's something to do with that strange-looking silver uh, coin in his pocket. You know, there's a certain amount of familiarity to a story like this. The the lovable loser, if you will, you know. What's great is the characters have weight and they feel real and therefore we're heavily invested in Lou's story. As he wins more and more, he works his way up the floors of the hotel. You know, there's endless sexual encounters, all the spoils he could ever want and even respectful and envious and envious glances being thrown his way. But... You know, at what cost? And does the owner of the hotel know his secret? And if so, what is the owner's hotel or the owner of the hotel's own personal ties to the coin? So again, this continues to be for me one of the best image books in the rack. You know, it's great standalone one shot stories. You can dip dip in and out of this as much as you want. If you see a writer that you like the sound of, 
grab that single issue because it's always going to be self-contained although there is an underlying narrative there as well so yeah ramvi on this one and uh i'm, I'm loving what My- michael walsh is uh continuing to to draw and churn out with this title so yeah silver coin number seven i think uh silver coin number seven has been my favorite issue of that series so far i love the uh the twist in with you know aztec culture and blood sacrifice and you know the sacred you know that 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 dual viewpoint that you know sacrifices made in and and silver in the you know in the casino versus sacrifices and blood and all of that sort of it was all very very good you'd expect no less from ramby uh especially in a, in a in a horror standalone so good job good choice yeah silver coin seven so yeah so uh as i say moving to a galaxy far far away star wars 19 then tell me about that quite and we're, we're going to shift into a wee bit of a star wars corner here it's been a while since we were in star wars corner for any prolonged period of time but uh i'm gonna stick here for a wee while star wars 19 was a great issue that sees luke travel across the galaxy desperate to continue his jedi training following his near-death experience at the hands of darth vader during the war of the bounty hunters which was the the multi-part uh miniseries crossover that uh, that recently was gifted to us uh, in amongst the star wars comics so uh, last podcast, you know, we talked about, you know, threading the needle by writing, you know, whenever writers are, are writing stuff that hasn't happened between historical viewpoints. I think we were talking about Nightwing and, and Red Hood uh, at that time. And I think Charles Soule does this fantastically here. So there's a list of Jedi significant planets from the Empire that, that R2 has stolen and they head off to check several of them. And they take us to some familiar places, including a brief time at Elam which was from the Clone Wars era and would eventually become Starkiller Base in the future, which was featured in The Force Awakens. And if you like the interconnected nature of Star Wars, then this issue, this is an issue that will either keep your mind turning over a lot or have you looking up a lot of things on Wikipedia, which is exactly what I was doing uh, because I'm, you know, maybe not as invested in Star Wars as a lot of people, but more so than your good self. And it's, it's worth it because it helps showcase how things have expanded over the years and there's some really deep cuts to highlight everything you know the uh you know there's a brief visit to all these words that show it's taken decades to acquire things you know from all the jedi temples and the acquisition of kyber crystals you know that has carried on and all of this sort of stuff so it was just it was just a whole ton of fun and it just so shows how well seated you know, these Star Wars books are within the greater Star Wars universe. Soul continues to dance that delicate but confident dance between movies here and is ably supported by Margot Castiello, uh, who does an absolutely sterling job in art. Yeah, see, this is where I need to invite Vicky to record just for uh, one or two reviews because she is the, the, the resident Star Wars aficionado in our relationship and she's reading all of Star Wars and Darth Vader and similar to yourself, completely swears by it. You know, Charles Soule is obviously heavily invested in this world. He wrote Darth Vader before. He's writing Star Wars now. He spearheaded War of the Bounty Hunters. So I get the feeling he's around for the for the long haul of the Star Wars stuff. Mm-hmm. So good to hear that he's putting out some good stuff. So Star Wars 19 there. And from number 19 to number 2. And the next one I'm going to chat about is Dark Knights of Steel number 2. It's written by Tom Taylor or by Yasmin Putri. And... As you'd expect, the first issue of Dark Knights of Steel kicked off with massive plot twists, you know, including the reveal of this universe's Batman's true parentage, as well as the assassination of a high-level character. And and while the reveal about Batman was massive and there would have been a temptation to continue pulling on that story thread 
With issue two, Taylor instead decides to flesh out this world and some more of the characters involved instead. So we're in, essentially introducing this issue to a version of Amanda Waller, who of course advocates that the elf family go to war and crush their enemies. Good to see that in any universe whatsoever, Waller has the same sensibilities. You know, we've more of Jefferson Pierce here, the chief suspect in the murder case, who has more on his plate than just the uh, just that accusation. He even has a sect of diehards who, unbeknownst to him, targeted Jor-El and think that the elves must be wiped out completely if this world is to thrive. You know, Taylor's alternate universes, they, they've always been dark. You know, whether Injustice, which shows us frankly evil, misguided versions of our favourite heroes, or the bloodthirsty versions in Deceased. You know, Dark Knights of Steel hasn't reached those heights just yet, though how this second issue ends may just be laying the groundwork to do so. Again, the art is to be applauded here. Great character designs, clean, crisp, expressive artwork. And there's also another big moment for the LGBTQ plus crowd with reimaginings of big characters providing representation. So, yeah, another great issue in this maxi-series and, and another one of my favourite DC titles on the shelves at the moment. Yeah, really enjoying it. Really enjoying it. Uh, it... Uh... I mean, Tom Taylor's on it, Dark Knights of Steel. It's like a fantasy reimagining of, of the DC universe. Uh, I, I loved it whenever it was done back in the day with the Avengers, with uh, Avatar's uh, Covenant of the Shield, I think it was called, like a, a fantasy reimagining of the Avengers and stuff. So this is, this is yeah, this is cool stuff. And Tom Taylor behind it, of course. So what's not to like? What's not to like indeed. And, and before we move on, actually, I should say I did open up a uh, Wikipedia page and it was indeed the 50 State Initiative. Which calls, for one, initiative. which calls for one Shield-sponsored superhero team for each state. So you can rest easy, 50 state initiative. Perfect. Thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll sleep. I'll sleep. Sleep well tonight. Okay. Um, so I'm uh, I'm sticking with the Star Wars universe with the first issue of uh, Star Wars Crimson Reign. Uh, the story that began with the War of the Bounty Hunters uh, miniseries that we just mentioned continues here in the second installment of a trilogy that will reshape the history of the Star Wars galaxy during the Edge of the Rebellion. And I think there's poetry here, you know, a trilogy of miniseries to match the trilogy of various trilogies of movies, you know. So it, it takes place after the events of the War of the Bounty Hunters and Kira, the leader of the criminal syndicate known as the Crimson Dawn, intends to kill Darth Vader and Emperor Palpatine. To do so, she gathers a collection of characters, including the Knights of Ren, the mercenary Uchi of Bestoon, the bounty hunter Chanath Cha and her orphans, and Kira then sends her allies on various missions, which sows conflict among other crime syndicates in the galaxy. Soul is willing to deep dive into dark corners and deep corners of the Star Wars mythos, including the old expanded universe stuff. And Soul also wrote The War of the Bounty Hunters and Crimson Reenacts as a direct sequel to that storyline and, and features characters and concepts from his runs on Darth Vader and uh, his rise of Kylo Ren miniseries, which I never read and... I think I'd love to pick up actually, and and uh, having having read this stuff, uh, Cummings' style is very sleek and polished, and it it manages to have a bit of a manga-inspired flair, which usually isn't to my taste, but works really well here. He also perfectly captures Amelia Clark's likeness while drawing Kira, whose tactics and planning here would put the Batman to shame. I've never been so glad to listen to one of your movie recommendations as to watch Solo, as the character of Kira was introduced there. And is central to the story, and that's the only place you ever really see her, you know. So, so thank you very much for that, sir. That's and uh, I have to say, I enjoyed it much more than I thought I was going to. Star Wars Crimson Reign number one delves into the criminal underworld of Star Wars universe. It adds depth to its leader, Kira, and with this series and the Book of Boba Fett, 
you know, we're getting a bit of a darker side to the Star Wars universe. I'm very happy to see it. If you loved War of the Bounty Hunters or you're loving Star Wars or Darth Vader or any of that, then this is the comic for you. So I'm quite sure Vicky's probably reading it. Yeah, she is indeed. I mean, going back to it, I mean, I think Solo is a great movie. I, I think it was always going to suffer for the simple fact that the main character is not Harrison Ford. Simple as that. But mm-hmm. unless mm-hmm. you do one of those uncanny val- valley de-aging of characters it was never going to be but I love the world building in Solo I think the, the action is great, I think the characters are interesting uh, and this is actually a Star Wars comic that I am going to read because I really like, as I say, I really like Solo so I'm happy to see a character from that being expanded upon so uh, so it's good to hear that it's of a, of a good quality You would probably probably want to read War of the Bounty Hunters first given that it was the, the prequel series to what is going to be a trilogy that i think uh kira uh and the crimson the crimson uh what do you call them crimson dawn are going to be uh s- central to look at you sensing that i'm going to read a star wars comic and saying well if you're going to read that you should read this one first i see you <laughs> i see you <laughs> uh, I, I i sense the disturbance in the force <laughs> well played well played well, we're going to move away from the Star Wars corner, but still stay firmly in the realm of Marvel with my next honorable mention, my last one for this week, which is Devil's Reign number one. So written by Chip Zdarsky and art by Marco Cicchetto. So my big blanket statement for this one is just give Chip all the Marvel events from now on. You know, just like Batman 118, this could easily have been my pick of the week. For me, this may be a controversial statement, I don't know. But for me, this is the best first issue for a Marvel event in quite some time. Uh, coming off the back of the excellent Daredevil 36, which we chatted about in the episode before, Devil's Reign kicks off with tons of respect for the colourful past of these characters. You know, Daredevil and Kingpin, of course, been enemies for many, many years. Once, Daredevil's identity as Matt Murdock was revealed, and everyone in the world knew it, but he did find a way to make everyone forget. So, Wilson Fisk, by this point, he's shed his identity as a criminal Kingpin and has become the mayor of New York City. But his obsession with Daredevil will never go away and he senses that somehow his memory has been messed with and he wants new Daredevil secret identity. You know, Fisk is upset about this to the point where he enacts the Powers Act, which essentially makes any unsanctioned superhero activity illegal, whether they're saving lives or not. Suffice to say, New York's finest heroes will not idly stand by and let people suffer when they have the means to help. And therefore Fisk and his newly formed Thunderbolts unit are on a collision course with the heroes of the Marvel Universe. You know, it's it's easy to say that there's more of a hint of Civil War to this event, but it's never so much that it detracts from how well executed this first issue is. You know, what, what appeals to me so much about this event, and of course this comes from Zdarsky's Daredevil run itself, is that it's very much a street-level event. You know, this is a contest for par between City Hall and superheroes. And you can be sure there will be plenty of tested loyalties, sides being switched, violence and large-scale set pieces. I think there's loads of wonderfully written character moments throughout the first issue as well. And it's, But it's no surprise that Sadarsky saves his best work for both Matt Murdock and Wilson Fisk. You know, I've, I've said this the whole way through his Daredevil run. His take on Wilson Fisk is amazing. You know, his he makes him such an interesting character. And he actually... His Fisk makes many valid points about the destruction caused by superheroes intervening and even about the sort of things and creatures they attract to Earth. But surely we can't agree with Fisk on any of this, can we? There's, But yeah, there's a moral ambiguity to this event and that's what elevates it for me. You've also got Marco Cicchetto's art, which is as, as incredible as you would expect. You know, He gets to draw essentially the entire 
Marvel Universe here, and there's dynamic action every frame. It's a street-level story, but it feels big and epic because of his art and again shows how well this creative team worked together so yeah six issues for this then an omega issue at the end and then into a new daredevil number one for Zdarsky. cannot recommend it highly enough burning stuff yeah loving it loving it um yeah don't forget i mean i think one of the one of the key points here is that the the thing that has motivated this is the fact that that fisk who is a man who who values his tactical mind you know, and is, is strategizing in the same way Batman does, you know, has recognized that his 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 mind and his memories have been taken yeah. from him or some part of that as, as you know, back in the day whenever Daredevil, you know, erased the Matt Murdock identity from everybody's minds. Uh, so that's, you know, so there, there is some understandable motive behind what Kingpin is doing here. Yeah. Um, I am a wee bit disappointed on a structural level that it, it is in some ways a, a smaller retelling of Civil War, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, and that Marvel are back at that pool again, and they don't need to be. Um, but I'm quite sure Sadarsky's got something else up his sleeve, um, and it's it's interesting, you know, because obviously, well, we've done Civil War, we've done Civil War Two, where Tony was on the other side, and now Tony again is is on the side because you know the the other side because the the person who wants to institute the registration is a villain. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of lot of lot to love here, lot to love here, um, and uh, as you say, street level. So we've got the likes of Luke Cage and Jessica and stuff involved, which is really cool. And I see they're representing Miles Morales in his new costume as well, which is cool. Yeah, again, tying it all together, and yeah, there's some great uh-huh. Luke Cage moments, especially in this issue. I thought. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, Devil Train number one of six, my last honorable mention for this week, and we've got one more honorable mention from yourself. What is that? Uh, that is uh, Vault Comics, The Rush number two. Uh, the Rush number one was my pick of the week, and I felt it would be, well, I mean, there's there's plenty to love in my, my pick of the week, uh, but it was narrowly pushed off that top spot. It's 1899, Yukon Territory in Canada, and Nettie Bridger's desperate journey to the gold fields of the frozen north has ended in tragedy. But Nettie won't believe it. She can't believe it. And her son, you know, her son, as far as she is concerned, is alive somehow, somewhere, and she won't stop hunting until she finds him. The valley has these monstrous guardians, and the miners have their secrets, and this crucible of gore and gold. In it, the flickering flame of a mother's love is barely enough to melt the ice, according to the solicit. Um, and it, it, it's a beautifully written solicit, which is why I had to read it back to you. <laughs> but first and foremost, this is one beautiful comic book. Addison Duke's colors and it's, it's rare that i would mention the colors you know before the writer or the or the the penciler evoke this sepia tone of photographs you know that that are you see from that sort of time that era but still managed to convey a real palette and, and a varied palette and the, the effect gives it like a real vintage feel you know it conveys the the difficulty and the like the hard scrabble life that these men lived among the dirt and the snow and the dead winter trees reminds me a lot of Deadwood, uh, you know, one of those fucking golden age of TV HBO shows, which I hope you've watched. Um, <laughs> the story is likewise extremely vivid, and every backup character seems to have a life of their own. Uh, you know, shown when the character of Lapointe asks the assembled codgers, you know why their town is so strange only to get answers ranging from something in the water to wendigos and the tension builds you know the horrible knowledge that the peel uh which is 
like an unseen like creature white with a with a with a giant spider familiar has taken young Caleb you know and that likewise intensifies and climaxes in a horrifying final page where where the main character Nettie's face conveys every ounce of tar- terror she is feeling while something terrible happens Cy Spurrier knows how to craft a hell of a comic book a hell of a horror comic book and I have no idea where this is going but I am there for the ride and I know Roddy is too as I suspected he's loving this one well, you know, he is Mr. Indy, so he will definitely be up for this book. I mean, Cy Spur is one of our... He, he He's a great writer in general. I mean, we maybe don't talk about him as much as we talk about, I don't know, Zdarsky, Tom Taylor, Tom Kim, whatever. But he is maybe under the radar, slightly just crafting some great books at the moment, you know, and working with Vault, working with Marvel, of course, DC work as well. And yeah, I'm on this as well and really, really enjoying it. It's uh, And I love the covers. See the, the covers again? We were talking about like that retro feel of something like human target this has a retro feel of like old wanted posters back in the wild west or mm-hmm. something like that yeah and that's exactly what it is exactly you know, what it is fantastic stuff perfectly fits what the title is so uh yeah the rush number two vault comics there keith's last honorable mention for this week so we're going to finish off as we always do them with picks of the week which of course are spoiler filled and again third week in a row both indie titles but this time coming from two different publishers so I'll kick things off first of all. You know, this week, Devil's Reign could have been a, a pick of the week. Batman Momone could have been a pick of the week. But this was always going to be my pick of the week. I just knew from the second this was solicited, this was always going to be my pick of the week. Uh, so this is Crimson Cage number one. This is written by John Lees with art by Alex Cormack. A wrestling tale told by the creative team behind Sync. Published by AWA Studios. It's like this book was specifically targeted at me and holy hell it did not disappoint so you know it's common knowledge for anybody who knows me that i've had a massive reawakening of my love of wrestling in the last couple of years you know the rise of AEW has brought a massive amount of new fans to wrestling and in a strange mirroring of that i think AWA studios is slowly bringing in new readers to comics you know between their price points for their graphic novels their genre storytelling and also titles aimed at a more adult crowd who who maybe wouldn't want to get involved in the world of superhero spandex. You know, they're an indie company very much on the rise. Which brings us to Crimson Cage number one. You know, the first in a five-issue miniseries. Wrestling meets Macbeth. I am sold. You know, why there aren't more mashing-ups of the bard with the world of wrestling is a mystery to me. You know, wrestling is nothing if not storytelling in its purest form. With lots of backstabbing, grabs for pars, changing of alliances. In Crimson Cage, we're, we're transported to New Orleans, 1984. We've got Chuck Frenzy as the main event star of a local Louisiana pro wrestling territory, but he yearns for something greater. And there's a fateful encounter with a trio of terrifying beings in the bayou, which gives Chuck a glimpse of championship glory beyond his wildest dreams, if he is willing to do something terrible to achieve it. You know, John Lee's the writer. He's a vocal wrestling fan himself. If you are if you haven't already subscribed to his Twitter account, then do so as soon as you can because he has a wealth of knowledge and positively joyous about the industry. You can just tell that he gets this world and that's why he's so at home telling this kind of story. You can tell he just gets this world, you know, and this really comes across in Crimson Cage. But what I would also say is this is not just a comic just for wrestling fans. You know, while they will undoubtedly appreciate all the winks and nods to wrestling history... Lee's makes it really approachable and easy to understand within a few pages. You know, we've we've genuinely had a few regulars in store who aren't wrestling fans, but they absolutely love this first issue. 
Lise makes Chuck friends in immense, immensely likable guy who's a devoted husband and is happy helping others look good in the ring. But given his potential and skill, it's only natural he would want to work on a bigger stage and therefore be able to take care of his wife and, and potential future family. We think he's going to get to that big time when he wrestles a big time player, a wrestler called Van Emerald, who promises to help Chuck through the match and put him over. In other words, you know, let him win. But suffice to say, this big time player is not a man of his word and simply enjoys torturing local level wrestlers and gets off on their disappointment and then moves on to the next town. This all leads to a heavy night out for Chuck and an encounter with some of those powerful beings I mentioned who promised that being world champion is his destiny. But to do so, he must kill the man who screwed him over, and they're very persuasive. The story is brilliant, the art is of a similar level. Alex Cormack has always been able to render beautiful and horrific images, and he renders the in-ring action in a similar fashion. For those that think wrestling is fake, well, no one told Cormac as he, he presents the in-ring action as dangerous and lethal. His characterization is also brilliant as these wrestlers come across as larger than life in the ring, but just regular Joes outside of it. Everything about this series exceeded the already high hopes I had for it. I cannot wait for the next issue. And issue two will go straight to the top of the pile the next week of release. So, Crimson Cage, for wrestling fans, for non-wrestling fans... Just brilliant storytelling, and again, I'm I'm just such big fans of these guys, and when they work together, magic is created, which is why you're not all. <laughs> might might have a look, might have a look. Uh, I'd be willing to, I'd be willing to 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 have a look at this first issue for sure. I mean, I don't hate wrestling; I'm just not into it, you know. Oh, I know. So I know, and and don't get me wrong, this is a week in which you did have, you know, twenty six titles on your pull list. It's a big list. But no, I, I might throw you issue one just to see what you think. I mean, just to get your take on it. It's because again, the the whole the whole thing with any comic like this is it should always be approachable for non fans as well. It should just be a well told story, and it is very much that. Uh, but just there's always going to be extra nods there for for fans like myself. So yeah, absolutely loved it. And again, AWA knock another new number one out of the park. So uh, that was my pick of this week, which is Crimson Cage number one. And for you, we also have a number one, I see, from an indie company that is not Image. That is correct. Uh, Dizzy number one is the first of a five-part series from Dark Horse. It is written and penciled by uh, an artist from Larne, County Down, uh, right here in Northern Ireland. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Colin Lorimer, and it's certainly one of the most compelling and intriguing introductions I've read in 2021. And uh, I say that about a book that was released in December 2021, so that's uh, given me the whole year to, to decide. Um, the first issue, you know, is having, you know, is great impact, despite being unsure, at, you know, where this theological horror mystery yarn is going to go. Um the story nominally is inspired by the Book of Enoch, which is an existing religious text attributed to the great-grandfather of Noah, but which was excluded from the Christian and Jewish biblical canon, but is still recognized by some uh, Ethiopian sects. The content of the Book of Enoch, you know, they're all very, it's all very apocalyptic, containing unique materials on the origins of demons and Nephilim, and uh, why some angels fell from heaven, and an explanation of why the Genesis flood was morally necessary, and prophetic exposition on the thousand-year reign of the Messiah. Specific to this story in the text, there's a bunch of angels who get nasty with some human women, 
who give birth to cannibalistic giants who eat everything and cause the angels to be expelled from heaven and are responsible for the great flood. You can read all about it. Religion is fucking mad. And the Old Testament makes David Lynch look reasonable. And <laughs> speaking of which, there's definitely a sniff of Twin Peaks about this issue where ex-cop Lindsay Taylor is searching for her missing son. An unexpected lead brings her to the backwater town of Bremont, where she meets a teenager named Daisy who stands almost nine feet tall and is convinced she is descended from cannibalistic giants spawned from the outcasts of heaven. The story bounces between the modern mystery and the ancient biblical horror, flipping the script so sharply you'll be reaching for your narrative seatbelt. But that's where a lot of the impact of the story comes from. And while by the end I have no idea where this is going to go, I'm again definitely along for the ride. And I'm sure it's not going to be simple. In an interview, Lorimer has suggested exploration of the idea of children whose card is marked from day one by the sins of their parents the product of their DNA with no hope of redemption and a look at the kind of God who might permit such a thing. I've got a feeling that Colin Lorimer might be an atheist, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Lorimer is also the artist in the book, and so the art, colored by Joanna La Fuente and Anita View, matches the story perfectly with attention and weight throughout that builds towards the unexpected end of the issue. The characters and locations seem really firmly grounded in reality, which seems to lend a natural tension, but makes the switch to the more fantastical elements of the book very, very stark and intense. Like, I guess, like the contrast between real life and religious myth. I mean, it, I found it to be an absolutely fascinating plot, and it, the art was great. It stayed with me for ages after I read it. It had me, you know, on Google you know, all after the Book of Enoch and, and all of this sort of stuff and has me eagerly anticipating what's to come next from this series. Uh, really, really good stuff. Did you read it? I did indeed, yeah. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. It's, yeah, I mean, the the links to obviously Lynchian sort of narratives and Twin Peaks and that kind of stuff definitely had me interested. I mean, Colin Lorimer is uh, he, he's a, he's a great creator. He's not a very prolific creator. He doesn't put out loads of stuff, but the stuff he puts out, I've I found to have been pretty great. Uh, he did series for uh, Image before, one called The Hunt, which was entrenched in Irish uh, mythology. He did one for Image also called Harvest. And he's also the first ever comic creator who ever walked into Coffee and Heroes. We were only open a couple of months and I got a phone call from Vicky. I was out at the post office saying, oh, there's a comic creator here. You you might want to get back to the store. And that was Colin Lorimer. I had a really good long chat with him and he ended up sending us over some you know, original artwork and signed issues and all this kind of stuff. Thoroughly lovely bloke. Uh, and it was it was a nice sort of moment for the store because we'd only just been open. But Ooh. but yeah, getting back to Daisy, this I thought it was great. Yeah, I was I was it was one of those issues. You know, sometimes when you have a big pile of comics, there's always a sometimes there's some issues you're reading, you're enjoying them to a degree, but you can't wait until they're over to get on to the next one to make the yes. pile yeah. good a bit lower. With yeah. Daisy, I got to the end of the issue and I was like, what oh, damn it is that it? I was sort of like, I want more. Yeah. So uh, yeah. yeah, I'm on this for the for the duration as well. I would say. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think uh, Colin also works in TV and movies, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I've actually been in touch with him uh, since since Daisy came out. So uh, I don't know, maybe watch this space if we're if we're lucky and he has the time, we might uh, we might get our our uh, fellow Northern Irishman on for a for a wee bit of an interview. Fingers crossed. 
yeah, here's hoping. Be good to chat to him, uh, certainly about this series and also the the rest of his career as well. So, yeah, Daisy number one is, as Keith says, from Dark Horse mini series uh, due out. Um, issue one's out. Issue two, I think, is due next week. I think off the top of my head. So we will wait and see. So yeah, Daisy number one brings to an end our reviews then for this week, which is the uh, 8th of December. So once again, we're going to take a little break and then we're going to move on to the 15th of December so you can join us back then. So I've been Alan Taylor and this has been Keith Miller. You can find Alan in store at Coffee and Heroes and on Twitter where Alan is at Coffee and Heroes 1 and I'm Ascanison00. Coffee and Heroes is a local comic book shop, coffee shop and community hub in Northern Ireland, based at Smithfield Market in the centre of Belfast. You can find Coffee and Heroes on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email us at coffeeandheroes at hotmail.com. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel as well. The Coffee and Heroes podcast is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and through all good podcast platforms. Please like and subscribe and leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, happy reading and hope to see you in store.